Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. If you're a Spoonie or caregiver, you're already familiar with the importance of taking care of your mental health as part of a whole person approach to healing. But there are so many options out there, and many either feel impersonal or are inaccessible due to exclusionary pricing and long wait times. When you're living with complex conditions, you need to streamline your care as much as possible, too. And with Mood Health, you can do just that. With personally designed plans starting at just $45, appropriately vetted practitioners, and a concierge who takes you every step of the way, Mood is a simple, affordable, and convenient solution with therapy, psychiatry, and medication management all in one place. Mood's amazing clinicians actually care about you, and long-term relationships are prioritized over quick fixes. Go to moodhealth.com and use code INVISIBLE10 for $10 off your first session. You can thank me later. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Dr. Akila Kaday. She is the founder and CEO of Change Kaday, an organizational development firm that specializes in anti-racism and diversity services. She literally has all the degrees, and I really mean that. She lives with a rare heart condition, which she's going to talk to us about. And most importantly, she is a proud Beyonce advocate. I mean, if you're not, what are you doing here? And also the host of the Change Today podcast, Dr. Akila Kaday. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here, Lauren. Yeah, it's a, it's so great that we're finally getting to talk. It's been a while that we've been in touch. And um, yeah, quite, quite, <laughs> quite some time. Um, and it's just really wonderful to be able to finally have this conversation. So I thank you so much for taking the time today. So let's let's start at the very beginning, which is, as, as I hear, the very best place to start. And I wondered if you could talk to us about when and how you first realized that you had something going on health-wise and, and how you have taken control of your health since that discovery. Yeah, so, you know, very normal chill start to this, which is heart flutters on a plane to London. <laughs> um, and I was like, wait, I've been to London several times before. Why, why is my heart fluttering? It made no sense like at all. Um, and so while um, I was in Europe doing a, a family trip, um, I was having night sweats, which didn't make any sense. And um, I was in the, the Louvre in Paris and the Egyptian antiquities section. And I had the worst chest pain ever. And for me, it made more sense to think that mummies or spirits were trying to talk to me. Sure. Totally. <laughs> Just from, makes, like, makes all the sense. Our family role, like we, I'm Haitian and mm. uh, we always talk about 
spirits and things. And then my mom's, my dad's side's Haitian. My mom's side is um, from Louisiana. So we've all, whatever we were into spirits. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, you know, that was a long time. I don't know like what to do. So all I could do is leave that space and, and catch my breath. Um, and so those were the first signs when I came home just to go through jet lag, jet lag in the thirties sucks, by the way. Yeah. I am with you on that one. Yeah. I don't even know how, I mean, like if it's two hours, I'm like, what do I, how do I function? But anyway, so I was recovering jet lag. Um, and this was four years ago and I was watching real housewives of something just catching up from what I met (laughs) in the weeks gone. And, um, I went into tachycardia while resting. I'd been on the couch for about two episodes, right? So hour 45, right. Mm. And I just went into tachycardia. So for your listeners, tachycardia is a hundred beats or more per minute while resting, like your heart rate can go up when you're walking and working out and all that other stuff. Um, but resting, it's not supposed to do that. And because I'm a nerd and all three of my degrees are actually in health and my doctorate is non-clinical, but it's from a med school. I have a heart monitor, so I could track what I was doing. And, um, I was like, okay, all right, maybe I'm dehydrated. The next day I had to drive to a meeting and I went into tachycardia again, but this time it was like 135 beats per minute. And then I was getting pain in my left arm and I knew what all these symptoms mean, but it, my health history, I have no cardiovascular stuff in my family, no cardiovascular myself. I have, I've been a vegetarian all my life. Like I didn't have any, any stuff going on to indicate that it was a heart attack. Um, and so I went to the meeting, got the project, which I was very proud of, and then scheduled an appointment with my provider. So it was a Friday um, to go on Monday to see my provider. Saturday, woke up feeling the same way, still in tachycardia. So I called the advice nurse and she's like, no, I know you have an appointment on Monday. I can see that. But I think you need to go to urgent care. And I was like, all right. So she's scheduling an urgent care appointment and me very chill. So my left arm is numb now. Oh, boy. Yeah. And she was like, call 911, call 911. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to the ER though. Um, And so I walked across the street and had my neighbor take me to the ER. It's three minutes away from me at that time. And that was the beginning of something not being right. Wow. And it's taken you some time also to get to the point of diagnosis in all of this too, right? Well, in order to get to diagnosis, you have to be misdiagnosed if you're really living it up right. Yeah. So can you talk to us about what that journey was like? Because you said this started about four years ago, you mentioned? Yeah. My anniversary is August 26th. Wow. So coming up very soon. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to buy. Um, <laughs> well, I'm glad you're thinking about treating yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I had, um, I was going to the ER every month for six or seven months. Um, and Along the way, probably I think the second or third ER visit, I was told that I had pericarditis, which is the inflammation of the pericardium. Pericardium literally holds your heart and protects your heart. Um, That at some point spread to my lungs. So I had costrochondritis, so inflammation of the cartilage in the lungs, and um, I mean of the cartilage around the rib cage, and then it spread to my lungs. So I was taking a lot of medication, still irregular heartbeat, still a lot of chest pain, um, weakness on my left side, stuff not making any sense, night sweats. It was a hot mess, pun intended. (laughs) Um, So um, 
the differentiating factor here is that my provider is a, a DO, a, a doctor of osteopathy. So you can only be an MD or DO to practice medicine in the US. And I went to med school that was a DO med school. So, um, and I was with her when I was healthy. And so she knew right away something was wrong. So I didn't have to prove that something was wrong. And so I was lined up with a cardiologist out of the first ER visit. Heart monitor was on. Fun fact, it was right before my 35th birthday. Oh, wow. Yeah. What a birthday and present. What, well, the birthday present was Magic Mike Live in Vegas. Oh, wow. That might yeah. affect many people's hearts. Many people's hearts. And I was like, if you go off heart monitor here, I do not want to explain to my cardiologist where I was at this moment in time. <laughs> it was fine. It didn't go up there. But um, so from there, uh, I, I was linked up with a really great cardiologist who believed me and my primary doc who believed me. And so they were piecing through. So eventually pericarditis didn't fit the bill, but it had done enough damage where I ended up with duodenitis, the inflammation of my duodenum. So I, I can't take NSAIDs uh, to this day. Um, it also gave me a wonderful ER trip where I uh, had subventricular tachycardia. And let me tell you, realizing that you're going to die is like one of the worst experiences ever. I mean, I didn't, spoiler alert, you know, mm. <laughs> I am here, but my heartbeat while resting jumped to 190 plus. Um, yeah, it was terrifying, terrifying. Um, and so eventually then, uh, after a whole bunch of tests, my cardiologist was like, you have this weird thing and it's rare called coronary artery spasms or pretzmensal's angina. It has lots of different names, um, silent heart attack. So essentially my body mimics a heart attack every single day. So if you think of a, a cramp in your calf, that happens in the arteries in my chest. They close like a heart attack. So a heart attack is clogged arteries. They just close for no reason. They close. It causes pain. And then they eventually open up. Um, I get weakness in my left arm. I get shortness of breath. And uh, yeah, there's, a, there's a, a variation of that every single day. And, wow. yeah. But not actual heart attacks, just mimicking. Well, I'm glad you asked, Lauren. Um, I live with a risk of actual heart attack every day because my arteries at some point in time may not open up and I can have an actual heart attack. So I always have to have <laughs> nitroglycerin. It's in my drawer. Um, I have around me, it's on my keychain. Um, and nitroglycerin is what's given to people when they are having a heart attack to open up the arteries so they can, you know, save their lives. Um, I also have to go to the ER for the rest of my life. Um, I was just in the ER last week uh, because I couldn't control tachycardia. And so I have to make sure I'm not having an actual heart attack and I have to have EKGs run and this test called troponin that looks at cardiac enzymes to see if there's any deterioration um, in my heart. So, and I hadn't been for two years. So it was like a bittersweet wow. moment. Yeah. I mean, this is all really interesting because we've had people on the show before, especially talking about the differences in experiencing the healthcare system between men and women when it mm -hmm. comes to heart attacks, especially. And you're talking about some of these classic symptoms of mm -hmm. a heart attack, the, the numbness or tingling in the arm, the pain in the chest. But, you know, for people who may not be familiar hearing this story, women's symptoms of heart attacks are sometimes not quite so classic, aren't they? They include sweating. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, night sweats, headaches can also happen. 
Mm. Um, but we also can have the greatest hits that people look out for, you know, yeah. um, all the time. But I would always get every year a visit. I'm just stressed out. Yeah. It's just anxiety, huh? Anxiety. I see wow. that you run your own business. That must be really hard for you. I was like, I just got a six figure contract. That has nothing to do with what's happening right now. Yeah. You know, um, and yeah, being pushed aside, definitely have had some horrific experiences um, in the ER as a result. So. Well, we're definitely going to get into some of that later if, uh, if you yeah. are comfortable sharing some of those stories with us. But I'm curious, you know, along this journey to diagnosis and um, treatment as well, obviously, did you find that you needed an advocate or was that a space that you stepped up into yourself given your background in the healthcare system too? Um, no, I knew I was going to do it myself. Um, so I worked in clinics and hospitals, health systems. Um, so I really know how to navigate the space. Um, and I just knew that I would have to carry the unfortunate weight, weight, it's not a burden, but just the weight of being the patient and the advocate. Uh, it's not fair at all. But, you know, that's how I hold uh, people accountable. And that's how and why I fire people all the time. If they don't believe me at all, it's like it's not going to work because it's just going to be additional weight that we have to carry, right, to go through just making sure we're taking care of ourselves. Absolutely. So how has that, if, if at all, had an impact on your relationship to self as well? Like, is it something that has bolstered your self-confidence? Was it something that was already there that you'd sort of picked up along the way in life? That's a a great question. I, when you think you're going to die, life changes. And so I give none of the fucks. And I I do that with a lot of confidence because it's like, you don't, I can't even explain to you right now, like what I'm going through. So I'm just going to be direct. And if you have a problem with that, then it's not going to work out. And so I've had to, you know, celebrate myself a lot to go into appointments. Like today, (laughs) I have received five injections between my neck and my lower back. And I go in and my MA wasn't there. And I was just like, and it ruins everything. It ruins everything. She's like, oh, we have to weigh you. I was like, we don't weigh this is not what we do. We are just getting injections. (laughs) We're getting injections. I also didn't sign my waiver today. It's a medical procedure. She didn't give that to me. I mean, you know, all of these things that I know. Yes, I know. Right. Um, you got to put on a gown. I was like, I literally had to tell her we have a routine. We're fine. Yeah. We're okay. Right. So you're also, you're also reducing your own sort of potential trauma exposures within the system. Right. And so I'm very sensitive to that, which at times can take away from when I should be resting because I'm advocating for myself where there's this additional stress that's there. And because I'm my own patient advocate, it's a very isolating thing to be both. So no one's ever taken me to get injections. The most I've had at one time was 14, six in my neck. And that makes you lightheaded. I drive myself there. I drive myself home. I I get, depending on the time of day, a hash brown at McDonald's or french fries. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure your cardiologist is thrilled about that. No, he actually is. I have to have an insane amount of salt every day. So it's approved. Like he's literally prescribed potato chips to me. Um, And this is for the tachycardia. 
Uh, no. So I'm glad you asked. Um, I have inappropriate sinus tachycardia, which you know. Mm. I also have um, preatrial contractions. So I have an irregular heartbeat. And then I also have orthostatic hypotension. So my body doesn't regulate sitting to standing or standing too long. So I'm, I'm a falls risk. Um, and then coronary artery spasms um, on, on top of that. And then the injections are for hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome that I was just diagnosed with this, uh, last month. Wow. Oh, wow. And do we know if there's a connection between these cardiovascular concerns and there can be, I don't want it to be because vascular um, EDS is deadly and I don't want that. I don't want that at all, but um, I'm waiting for genetic testing and um, genetic testing takes, it can take a year plus to be seen by a geneticist. So um, just to, you know, see, but um autonomic dysfunction uh, is is part of what comes in with orthostatic hypotension and hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So there's um, a connection that's, yeah. that's there. And then I have a hypermobile spine. So I have to regularly get injections between, you know, my spine. And for those of you, people who may not know, your spine is also your neck, but <laughs> neck down to uh, my pelvis, I'll receive um, injections every every few weeks. Wow. So are you living in pain every day? Yeah, I'm sitting on a donut right now because I have coccidinia as a result of my spine and um, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, I'm wearing a thumb splint because my thumb is subluxicating. So it's just dislocating and going back in and out. Part of it is because I, I just moved to my very first home, which I'm very proud of. Um, so I, I'm, you know, doing, I have help. But even simple things like carrying a bag for donations hurts my um, joints. And so, yeah. And, but again, that goes back to, you know, being my own patient advocate, I have to take care of myself all the time. And I really actually need other people to take care of me, but they don't know how to navigate the system or hear me out, have jobs. Right? Right. And so, you know, healthcare doesn't say like, hey, do you want to have an appointment, you know, at 6.30 p.m.? There's some places that do that, but for my specialist, that's not the case. So, you know, because I run my own business um, and my health stuff started one year after I went full-time into my own business, I'm able to, you know, make the change and time and adjustment that's needed to go to these appointments. Yeah. So you're fortunate in that sense, but it's also, I mean, thank goodness that you've created a career for yourself and created a business for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Because how can you work around someone else's schedule when? No, I mean, if I were in the nine to five job I was in before, I would have lost it because when I was first going through stuff, I couldn't work for like a month. Um, And then I started working, but I would have to have an ice pack on my chest or a heating bag. And I couldn't, I slept upright for an entire year because if I was flat, I would have a tremendous amount of, of pain. So it's like, well, what would that be like if I was commuting into the city or commuting in a car to go someplace where I couldn't, you know, at least be comfortable. Wow. It's a lot of considerations that you're taking into account day to day. Always. I, you know, I'm, I'm wondering how a typical day is playing out for you. Cause it sounds like a lot of it is, disease management and sort of preventing symptom occurrence. Yeah. I mean, symptoms are here every day. Uh, but, um, 
my day starts with um, Verapamil, um, which is my heart pill that I have to take. It's an extended release pill that um, minimizes the chest pain that I have. Fun fact, because I have orthostatic hypotension, I'm limited with how much medicine I can take to control my spasms. Wow. Because if I took more, I would be comatose. Whew. Yep. So that's fun. Um, so I start my day with medicine and then um, I do my best to eat, but I'm a founder and CEO of a company. So sometimes um, I go into meetings. I have anywhere between six to 10 meetings, interviews, workshops that I do a day. So I do a lot of um, sitting. Um, and then I, it's very common for me to, to lead a workshop and lose my breath and have shortness of breath. And so then I have to communicate to people. It's like, Hey, I have this thing. So I'm going to be breathy right now. So a lot of just kind of communicating what's happening or, Hey, I was in the ER. So we're going to have to reschedule this, you know, this type of meeting. So that happens throughout the day. Um, but usually, uh, people have no idea that I'm in pain because, I make a lot of jokes. I use a lot of humor. I'm sarcastic AF. Um, and part of that is just to keep me as upbeat as possible with the pain that I'm in. Um, people have no idea that I have a spasm happening because I just work through the spasm. Sometimes I have to be clever and get a little nitroglycerin to stick under my tongue and keep going. Um, and then at the end of the day, um, I'm usually exhausted. So good days, I'll eat. Uh, not good days, Capri Sun, string cheese, yeah, potato chips, cardiologist prescribed potato chips will be the end of the day because I have to say like, okay, do I want to stand up and cook for, you know, 15 to 30 minutes or do I just want to lay down on the couch for two hours with my feet up? Um, and so I have to weigh that option and um, I go to bed. I usually have a a good night. I'll have like one night sweat. <laughs> um, and I take pain meds to go to sleep and then I rinse and repeat and do it again the next day. Um, most of my week, I work four days a week. I can't work full time. So I always have a three day weekend, which is pretty good unless there's an emergency work wise. Um, but my life now has become me basically doing nothing on the weekends. So it's pretty isolating because I, I'm, I have a demanding job that I love. Um, but then I have to think about, I'm always thinking about my energy too. So no one can talk to me on Sunday. Sunday is like my day to just do whatever. And then I decide on Saturday, am I going to virtually meet up with someone <laughs> or am I going to go on a socially distance walk with them? Because again, it's that energy that I'm, I'm looking to rebuild. Um, yeah, for the week. Yeah. And now most of my weekends involve THC CBD gummies so that I'm eating what I don't eat during the week. Mm-hmm. And then I'm able to sleep. So I'll eat and sleep. So I'll do right. that at least like one day. I mean, it, it really is every day is revolving now around your, your management. Really, oh, yeah. It? Yeah, definitely. And then some days obviously we'll have appointments. Um, I was in the ER last week on Monday and my move was Sunday. And so it set me back because I had to rest. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's 
why this move's taken forever. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes they do. I, I'm curious as well, because what you're dealing with is largely entirely invisible, except when you're, you know, using a mobility yeah. aid or wearing a brace, you yeah. know, and you mentioned that you had doctors from the get who believed you. Yeah. And, and we know how important that is. Have you found yourself in situations where you've had to validate the existence of your diagnoses or even your symptoms to people who just couldn't get it because they couldn't see it? Yes, it's called VIP parking. Um, some of you may know it as ADA or American Disabilities Act parking. And it was a whole thing for me to have a placard. But my primary doc was like, it's time. And I was like, no, 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 let's just do another temporary one. Because I just assumed for the longest time it was an infection, infection in the heart. I was going to go away. She was like, it's not. <laughs> going away. So now I'm blue. So red and blue. Um, so I have a permanent placard. I remember I had energy to go on a walk. This is pre pandemic with um, a friend and um, I parked in ADA parking, got out, was walking to meet with my friend. Someone reversed their car to follow me to say that I can't park in that parking spot. Wow. And I said, well, today's your day to learn about invisible illness and invisible disability, because that's what I have. And if you want to go back, you'll see my placard yeah. and you can have a really great day. You know, so there's stuff like that. And even there's times with my own family where I'm known as like the independent one and like the strong one where my mom will forget that I have something. I was like, mom, I can't do that. <laughs> like, I, I can't do that. And she was like, why? Because I'm in pain right now. So I'm going to need to rest. I can't do the thing that you, you know, want me to do. I can't move as, as fast. And so, you know, there's always these unnecessary teaching moments that we have with invisible disability, chronic pain, invisible illness, where we have to show people. And it doesn't help that I'm cute. It doesn't help that I'm stylish. It doesn't help that I smile and I'm able to laugh because I always find a way to find joy in my day that's just full of pain. You know, I can laugh and whatever. I have to make the best of it. But then people will feel that I'm taking advantage of a system, you know? Yeah. Um, and so sometimes I really just don't want to deal. And other times people get a crash course and all the things that they need to know. So they'll never do that to someone else moving forward. Yeah. I mean, it's no surprise that you're in the line of work that you're in, given what your body has asked of you, really, you know, in that so much of that is about re-educating people. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering also, you know, how some of these prejudices may have played out in the healthcare system, too, because we hear that story about ADA parking far too frequently on this show. Um, but in terms of the way that you present, yeah. You know, a heteronormative woman of color walking mm -hmm. into an ER. Mm -hmm. Can you see your circumstances being different if you presented differently, if you presented with a different gender, with a different race? Yeah. If, you know, and also, do you think that perhaps your identity as it is has played into some of the care you've received? Yeah. I mean, last week at the ER, white male physician. Now I like set up with the, the triage physician. I actually knew we, I, I dated her husband's brother many, many years ago. 
And when I saw her, I just gave her a hug because she's also a black woman. So I knew I was going to be taken care of. ER is nothing but trauma for me. And so I had a private room. I was like in the back. It was great. It's wonderful. My potassium was low for like 0.2. And she's like, no, you're taking these potassium pills. It's great. So when the ER doc, so for the listeners who don't know, there's in some health systems, there's a triage doc who will start you into care. And then you have an ER physician who will come and take care of you. He came in and he was like, well, your EKG is fine. And your troponin was, is great. And so, you know, why are you here? I said coronary artery spasms. And he laughed at me. <gasps> yeah. And I said, you want to tell me about your face that you just made Good for you? And he said, what? I said, you made a face when I said coronary artery spasms. So do you want to tell me what that means? And he was like, oh, I've just never heard that. And I was like, well, I'm one of the two to 3% of the people in the U.S. that just have coronary artery spasms. I have no other, um, you know, heart issue that's there, like muscular. Like my heart is perfect and fine. Structure, structural issues. He was like, oh, okay. And I was like, let me just explain who I am to you. My name is Dr. Akila Kaday. I have a non-clinical medical degree from a medical university, but non-clinical. I used to be a healthcare administrator. I've had this condition for four years. You have to run troponin and EKG. I couldn't control uh, my tachycardia and I was doing this and that and taking nitroglycerin. Well, you should have taken nitroglycerin. Okay, well, the cardiologist and I have a plan of action and that's what we do. And in fact, he sent a note because I always go with the note. He sent a note that you have here. And he's like, well, I'm not a cardiologist at UCSF. So um, University of California, San Francisco. No, you're not, but we have a plan. And he was like, well, when did these symptoms start? 1207. Like me, I'm very specific. Yeah. And this is when I, you know, when I went through that and he was like, okay, well, I don't normally do this, but you understand stuff. So let's just look at your labs together. Mm. And so we looked at them and they were fine. And he was like, but when did, you know what? Let's just, let's just run another troponin, another EKG. Cause I, I think I would feel better if I did that. Great. You do that. And he never offered an apology either. No. Of course not. I mean, and this is also, I mean, again, far too common, these stories that we hear about medical professionals who look down on patients, mm-hmm. you know, um, especially the patients who know what they're talking about, right? Like the minute you start right. telling them this is what you need to do, it either shocks them into action or it shocks them out of it. Right. But also, but they don't have to be your doctor. You can always ask for another ER doc. You know, if they comply, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But I know my patients' rights. I know if I have a certain pain level, they can't discharge me. I know everything. Hmm. And I will happily complain and talk about your hospital's, you know, um, age cap score. So every hospital has to do a survey um, for patient care. And I will talk about those. But again, I have an advantage there. I mean, there was, a, there was another time in my earlier days of going to the ER where another woman was sent to the ER for an irregular EKG. So was I. She was triaged before me, came out with the IV. I was triaged after, did not come out with an IV. She got her room before me. She's older white woman, big old diamond. Um, we ended up being next to each other, separated by a curtain. Uh, the ER doc and the head of cardiology came down and said the following. We know you had an irregular EKG, but we also know you have a history of anxiety and panic attacks. Oh. So we just want to monitor you overnight just to make sure you are okay. 
And I'll never forget the guy's name was Dr. King. Dr. King is one of the best cardiologists. We'll take care. Okay. Okay. I see you're having a panic attack right now. We're going to get you some Ativan to make sure that you're comfortable and good and fine. And don't worry. It'll be okay. Everything will be fine. You'll be fine. And then come to me. Yeah, we can't find anything with you. So we're just going to go ahead and discharge you. I said, my pain level seven, you can't discharge me. Well, what do you want? Vicodin? I'm allergic to Vicodin. I have a wristband on. Yeah. And so I was literally discharged in pain. We just recommend you see your cardiologist tomorrow. And literal, same thing, sent by the provider, provider note, provider, we had a EKGs at our provider, you know, like it's the same thing. But I, I see that type of treatment all the time. When I went to suffering circular tachycardia, I, and 190 beats per minute, I was asking for help. I couldn't go anywhere. I was plugged in. A person opened the curtain and said, what's wrong? I was like, I need help. Can you not? It's beeping. It's going, I need help. I cannot breathe. But, you know, the guy said, I don't work here. Oh, my God. And it was a paramedic. And I was like, you need to get me some help. And so then my ER doc came in with an ultrasound machine to look at my heart. And she said, oh, you must have just been really nervous that you're by yourself. Uh And I was like, no, I literally was on Instagram for like 30 minutes. There was nothing compelling about Instagram, (laughs) you know, and I had a friend with me, but she had to go pump and, you know, whatever. And, um, I had to do the same spiel with her. My name is Dr. Akila Kadeh. Do not talk to me like that. I have a history. You can see it in my chart. There's something going with my heart. It hasn't been diagnosed yet. And so it turns out that one of the medicines I was on for pericarditis, there's a small group of people that have subventricular tachycardia. Yeah. So, I mean, that happens to me over and over again. And so even my cardiologist knows I do not like going to the ER at all. And so last week I was like, literally, this is the email subject line, ER or not to ER? That's the question. And then I told him what I was experiencing. He's like, you got to go to get evaluated. Right. So he knows to like send a note, you know, uh, so I can go because as a black woman, we already are not believed just in regular life. <laughs> and so to go into a life or death situation with the heart, it, you know, I have to do everything to stay as calm as possible while navigating stuff, realizing people aren't going to believe me and hoping someone does. And I also hope that I'm not dying like every time. And it's just so many feelings and emotions that go into it. Um, and so much more self-management emotionally. Right. So many more considerations. So much more. Yeah. Yeah. I am so sorry that you have had these experiences over and over and it, it maddens me to no end that this is what is perpetuated, especially in ERs. No wonder there's such a traumatic experience. I mean, and that what you said earlier, that is on top of being a woman with heart stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, and I hope people who are listening to this episode are hearing this and, like we talk about prejudice on the show, but this is, it's not enough to also be listening to these stories and knowing that, that medical bias, that racism exists, you Mm -hmm. know, it's also about getting up and doing something about it. Or if you're in an ER and you see someone being treated unfairly speaking up about it. Yeah. I mean, speaking up about it, it's important, but also it's important for the listeners to realize that Black bodies are not believed due to the history of enslavement of Black people in America. So the way to justify, you know, whipping, raping, murdering, and maiming enslaved Black people was to say that they had a higher pain tolerance. 
that's not the case. We're all human beings. We're all the same pain tolerance. That has literally been taught in medical institutions. The last study was done in 2016. And so hopefully things are slowly starting to change. But that's also why I will get discharged without, you know, like they don't believe my pain or discharge without pain management or not, you know, believing me because we are literally viewed as less than. Yeah, absolutely. The healthcare system is hard enough to navigate without having chronic illness diagnoses to boot. Feeling all at sea and looking for direction, advice, and deeper understanding? From a medical specialty glossary to tips on talking to your health insurance providers, Download your free copy of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Thank you for sharing that. And and I think that history is so important for people to understand too. Um, it's so upsetting and shocking, you know, and I think there's there are still so many individuals who hear stories like this and still have trouble believing because yeah. people don't want to admit that that's the reality. So it's never been shocking to me because I've always had less than treatment. And the only difference is that I have three health degrees, right? But one would think it's like, well, she's educated and she has all these degrees. Like you said earlier, people can use that against me. Like, well, she's a know-it-all. Yeah. You've done too much Googling, (laughs) you know, whatever that thing may be. But it's really important to note that, like, even when I went to the ER for the first time, the reason why I didn't call an ambulance is because I knew I wouldn't be admitted. I was 34, no cardiovascular history. And the only way to not have an ambulance bill is to be admitted to the hospital. These are all the things that I know. So it was easier for me to have someone drive me there and not deal with that. Yeah. But a lot of white people don't have to even think about that. Absolutely. And then it's like, oh, but also you need to take care of yourself and rest. But it's like, but I just left a traumatic experience, right? Well, there's never the time to recover now or the space in which to recover because you walk out the door and it's white supremacy. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's that too. And then the type of work that I do, I'm like, not like, well, you're exposed to these conversations all day. Well, I'm an international expert now. So I help million dollar and billion dollar companies have these conversations And so I literally traumatize myself in the work that I do to make everything better. And like getting all this health stuff and getting into club ADA, I didn't realize that I have another part of intersectionality for me. So it's a person who lives with disability, who is black, who is a woman, who is a founder, who's a CEO. Like it's just always, always happening. It's also why I don't do much on the weekends because I'm taking care of businesses and people also taking care of myself, you know? Absolutely. And you've got every right to rest. I'm wondering as well. I mean, would you say, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say to this question, but would you say that racial and gender inequalities, but also these inequities of involving sexual identity, um, you know, gender identity, would you say that that the prejudices around these identities inside the healthcare system constitute their own public health crisis? Oh, it is. I have a whole series on Healthline about that. <laughs> uh, it's called Black Health Matters. Um, right. And it's talking about the social determinants of health and yeah. how it affects the Black communities, but communities of color. The health system is literally only designed for 
cisgendered heterosexual white people. That's it. Because once you start going into other factors, that's where discrimination comes in. Stereotypes, bias, assumptions. So let's say for thinking about people who are trans and how they're receiving care. Right. So there's that. I mean, you're kind enough to ask pronouns to, to before we start. But imagine going to an appointment and they don't ask pronouns. They don't ask for your pronouns or they're just saying you can't do this or can't do that and overlooking or not using their their name that they would love to be called. I mean, so there's also there's that part that's there, too, or making assumption like, oh, you're a gay guy. So clearly you've had a lot of sex. So you are probably, gonna, you know, like that also can happen. Right. I literally just unmuted myself so you could hear me roll my eyes ah. to that one. I mean, yeah, it is unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So there's that. And then, you know, people have comorbidities like me, multiple health things, then it's not just straightforward. It's not just cancer. It's not just breast cancer. You know, I have eight different things <laughs> that can work well together or not, you know? And so um, there's a lot that goes there. Size food access. Think about diabetic patients. Do they have a refrigerator for their medication or do they not? Houselessness, but all these factors go into it. So healthcare is designed for like that perfect family that has everything. And I don't know, maybe health insurance, right? (laughs) Because of our, our system. So if someone is through covered California or Medicaid, Medicare, then they can also be treated differently. There's yeah. so, I mean, you know, there's so many factors into it that take away from maintaining health. Yeah, which is, and that's been the theme this whole conversation, right? Has been you then finding strategies to come back to yourself to rest. I mean, yes, I had to do a lot of neurological testing and um, nothing like getting a needle stuck into you with electrodes. So fun. Um, but my insurance company was a few years back two years ago, they were like, uh, you owe, I don't know, it's like $500,000 for this test. And I was like, no, I do not. <laughs> yes, you do. No, I do not. Well, your provider is out of network. No, he's not. Back and forth. And I was like, he's in the network because I made sure that this neurologist was in the network. Do you know that they're like, oh yeah, he has a couple different numbers. It's just $25. Oh my God. And then I think about the people who just paid the bill. More the people who don't know to call health insurance and have the argument with them. Exactly. Yeah. And it shouldn't even be an argument. It's like, yeah. you you gave me the website for me to look up, <laughs> you know, the neurologist name. So I, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it's really honestly, like, it's just not fair in general. Yeah. That, you know, so again, heterosexual, cisgendered, white people, great. But these are non-disabled folks. These are people who don't have chronic illness. They're just doing their physical in a pap and that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're and lucky if they get the pap sometimes, but yeah. yeah. Right. Well, that's a whole other thing, but isn't it just like one medication? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm wondering, I mean, these are a lot of the ways in which the healthcare system is failing us, right? Especially because of the privatization of healthcare in this country. Mm-hmm. Are there ways in which the healthcare system does work for chronic illness and disabled patients? It works with, again, providers who believe you, right? Um, So there's that. The second thing is boutique healthcare is actually pretty great too. So my primary is through One Medical. And so I get boutique care. There's someone always on call. They'll do a whole bunch of shit for me. It's great. 
you know, so I'm happy to have that. Um, and then I think, you know, when something is clear, like when you have a clear diagnosis or a clear procedure that's needed, that's great because then it's like, okay, I'm going to do the thing and then I'm going to go into PT or whatever it is. But overall, it's not designed for us, you know? So like with my hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I was already in physical therapy, but the physical therapy had to change. And so the front desk person's like, okay, so I need to send you an intake form. So what is it? What is it for? And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to feel on July 14th. I don't know if it's going to be my back or my left leg or my ankle. I don't know. Well, let's just say it's your back. So the thing that I'm supposed to do to stay healthy won't even treat how Ehlers-Danlos syndrome just is a connective tissue disorder. So it means that your joints, you know, for your listeners, your joints can um, just be inflamed and flare up. And so you'll have to do specific PT in that area um, to kind of just work through it or manipulation or treatment. You can't, you cannot have that with physical therapy needs to be your shoulder or your arm or your leg. Yeah. And then you always have to like re up, right? So it's like, you gotta re up, gotta re up, gotta re up. Yeah. The lack of bespoke care for specific diagnoses is really, it's very challenging, isn't it? And that's exactly what this issue is. Yeah. I mean, it's either you're getting into an NHS, National Institutes of Health study, or, you know, one of the UC or university studies, and you get all the specialized care for things, boutique care, or you're paying additional money for different levels of boutique care that's out there, or you're navigating your HMO or PPO, trying to make it work for you. Hmm. So even in that, it's still a clusterfuck. Yeah, I would say that's probably the correct terminology to describe (laughs) that situation. So I'm wondering how you got to the place where you started sharing about what was going on with you? Was that something that kind of happened naturally? Was it, did it happen because of the work you do? How did your experience turn you into an advocate? Uh, I was getting to the year mark of, okay, maybe this, and maybe coronary artery spasms or me to do CT for your heart. We do an angiogram, like that type of thing. And I was like, oh, so this is my life. And so I did what every... American would do, which was post something on social media. (laughs) So um, I posted a picture of myself with a heart monitor. And I believe that one I had to wear for 30 days. And it was complete with like a dad phone clip. (laughs) I had to really embrace that in my fashion. Yeah, Um, I, I just shared that with the world because I was hesitant because, uh, I didn't want to lose business. Right. As a result of that. And I didn't want to be treated differently. I don't like, I'm a Virgo. I don't even like attention. So um, I, I didn't want that shift. I didn't want to be like babied or anything like that. So yeah, I just like put the post up and then people are like, oh my God, you're great. And I was like, I mean, I know, but also thank you. <laughs> you know, um, thanks for saying that. And then I really realized that because we do organizational change work and diversity, anti-racism work. I couldn't leave out that part of my intersectionality, my cultural identity, which is now 
you know, I had to learn about invisible disability because I didn't know what it was because it's invisible. They don't put it out there. Mm -hmm. You know, like every other person, you're looking for that assistive device or that visual cue for like something is happening um, and did a lot of education. So I just started talking about my experience, started educating my clients more about that and then accidentally became an advocate. <laughs> so, yeah, just because yeah. of the share. Because of the the share. That has to also have been very validating to have people be like, I see you. Yeah. I mean, I literally don't care how other people view me when I say that with love. Like if I inspire them, great. But literally I had to get on the plane or I had to eat the food. I had, you know what I mean? I, you know, if it's inspirational to you, that's great. Like there's a time and I post about it. I was in the ER, literally had to do a talk at UCLA, flew down there, had crazy chest pain, go to one medical, irregular EKG, had to go to see your cyanide. And I was like, hey, so I have a talk in a few hours. And went and did my talk in front of hundreds of people, copped on the plane the next day, came back. They're like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like, I'll talk about that. Yeah. But it's just like, I have commitments to and I find as much as I can live my life in a, a regular way I don't believe normal anything um the easier it is to well I think what you're getting at is that it. is living your life without these diagnoses determining your identity I mean it's a, it's a part of my identity right but you have to know people are like oh my gosh you're so inspirational for just doing a regular ass thing mm-hmm. and that's not my intent to be inspirational I'm just telling you what my life is like And if that inspires that person, I think that part is great. Like I live by myself. I have no one to help me. You know, I would love that. If anyone's single, slide in my DM. Anyone's listening to this? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess he's single and available. I'm open. Um, You know, you know, so I still have to, to, to do stuff and move on. So, I mean, that one post just allowed me to really be my true authentic self. Hmm. And just to, to let everyone know who I am and what I'm dealing with. Yeah. I, I'm wondering, you have such a wealth of experience, you know, that you have been sharing, right? You know, and you've talked us through such an incredible experiential journey here too. And, you know, incredible in good ways, incredible in bad ways, right? I, I was wondering if you could crystallize some pieces of advice for people who are tuning in, who are also living this invisible illness, invisible disability life, who are living in similar identities, intersectional identities. Can you offer, perhaps it's something that, that you wish you'd known when it first happened to you or, um, you know, something to get people through, but, but what would you offer as, as a tip for people who are tuning in? Yeah. I mean, the first one is to communicate your needs, right? Because we're living in this invisible space. And so you have to communicate your needs to your providers, your family, your friends, your employer, whomever. You have to just let them know because they aren't going to see it. Um, The second thing is those around you, just ask them to do their research. Google what you have. (laughs) Just take the time to Google because a lot of individuals will say like, well, what can I do for you? How can I help? I much, you know, how can I help is a great question to ask, but I much prefer someone say like, can I come pick something up for you? Right. To be more specific because they read about EDS 
and they realize like, oh, she's she's moving right now. I should probably offer to help her <laughs> like move some boxes or run an errand for her. Um, and so I say that because the person who's living with invisible illness, disability or chronic pain should feel comfortable telling that person just like, hey, I want you to be specific in your ask for me. Because some days I don't even know what I need. And that's because I'm dealing with brain fog. Always, it's always great to send meals, by the way. That's fantastic. Send two, three meals. Or do laundry. Cleaning and and meals. Cleaning or send a cleaning, use task rabbit, send a cleaning person over. Stuff like that is definitely helpful. Or if you want to, if you love to clean, come on over, right? (laughs) You You know, making sure you're having someone be specific in the ask. The person living with invisible disability, you can also write a list down of what you need um, from time to time. So like I have brain fog and like even my sister will get mad at me. And I'm like, I literally don't know what I like. We had a plan for today and I forgot what the plan was, you know, and so you just have to kind of remind them. And so having lists is helpful or like give me a minute to write this thing down. The other thing for people working with their providers is to let them know if you're asking for a test um, a procedure, something, whatever it is, if they say no, ask them to write it in their chart. Yeah. Right. And a lot of people don't realize that, but when they do that, they're like, I'll just run the test. A lot of where we are is ruling stuff out. It's not finding a diagnosis. It's just ruling stuff out right, to potentially narrow stuff down. Um, so you should definitely do that. And then, um, you can always record your appointments. If you're by yourself, record your appointments. Um, you can just let them know. It's like, I have a disability, so I'm going to record this appointment so I know what I can do so I can follow your rules. And sometimes they'll give you an after-visit summary, and you can ask them to give it to you to read before you leave. So if something is missing or doesn't make any sense, you can ask the medical assistant um, or the, the physician can come out and um, clarify. That's all such great advice because it's both emotional and practical. There's, you know. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, it's the brain of Virgo. I'm just like, I have well, things, but very, very practical. And I think. Yeah, exactly. The the last thing I will say for people who are listening mm. is you got to find whatever your mantra is. So mine is keeping amazing. It's on my t-shirts. I put it out there. It is a mere miracle that I'm able to do all the things that I can do. It is nothing short of amazing, um, just doing stuff in, in chronic pain. So I celebrate all the little wins and keeping amazing is one way to do it. So if I make it up the steps, yay. If I have to use my cane today, no problem. You know, whatever <laughs> that thing may be, we have to realize that we are um, amazing people and we need to always celebrate ourselves. Yeah. And, and also this idea of, your body being a miracle, even when it's causing you yeah. issues, yeah. right? Like, but you are still here and, you know, it, it, you have a brain that is enabling you to live an incredible life in your career, you know, like have great relationships. So there is a lot to be grateful for in that. It sounds like. Totally. I mean, a lot of me is throbbing right now, but yes, there's a lot to be <laughs> appreciative of. Right. Well, and, and to be real about both the both and mm-hmm. right. That like, there's good and there's yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. What about an, one more top three list? 
I was wondering if you could share with us three things that give you joy. Like when you need to light yourself up, when you need to celebrate a win, what's something that you turn to? The office. I turn to the office. Like, like your office or like no, the show? No. <laughs> Just the checking. Show. Yeah, I've watched The Office like a billion times. I know everything about the show and it just makes me laugh. Yeah. Um, and so I'll do that. And like Comedy Central plays it all the time, but also, you know, you can watch it anyway. Um, and then the other thing that I do for joy, um, cupcakes. So <laughs> um, it's either many cupcakes or many brownies. So like the end of the day, it's like, you did it. Oh, no. <laughs> you can celebrate by eating it. Yeah. 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 And then the last thing, honestly, is that I'm the, this, the celebrating the little wins brings me um, a lot of joy. So, you know, a client had a little breakthrough. Great. Um, I made dinner. Yay. Um, I'm going to unpack a box. Yay. So I don't center my joy on big experiences. Like a lot of people do the promotion, the birthday, they won something or whatever it is. I don't do that. I'm just like, I actually look presentable today, <laughs> you know, and um, I'm able to, to find the joy there. Yeah. I love that. The joy in the details. Mm-hmm. So what is your ask for listeners today? What can they do to support you and your community and your ongoing work? I love that. Um, well, one, there's lots of shirts that people can purchase um, on my website. Uh, for those of you who are living with invisible illness, chronic pain, um, invisible disability, buy the Keeping Amazing shirt. Wear it. I like will sleep in it. I wear it. People smile when they wear the shirt too because they're like, hmm, I could, I could do that. Um, mm. So you're able to do that. Um, you're welcome to follow me on Instagram at the word change and cadet, like cadet, C-A-D-E-T. Um, you can also sign in my DMs if you need a high five. We have to kind of support each other as much as we can. Um, but more importantly, I, I want you to find ways to literally celebrate yourself. I like, I cannot stress this enough. That's the most important thing to me. So if people are able to kind of get into the place of like, okay, I did this because living in pain is a lot. I also have major depressive disorder from the type of work that I do and managing chronic pain. And um, it's just, it is a lot to carry. And so if we can lighten our load a bit by finding that joy, celebrating ourselves, um, that's, that's the thing that matters the most. And if I need to be the person that does that again, side of my DMs so I can make you feel good. I love that. So what's next for you in your advocacy work, but also in your own health journey? What's next? Um, so health journey wise, waiting for the call from the geneticist. Um, so I can see if I have any genetic versions of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So um, looking forward to that. Hopefully we'll get to the point where I have injections every four to six weeks instead of every two weeks uh, working towards that. Um, advocacy wise, um, I'm talking as much as I can. So obviously your podcast, I, I talk wherever I can. Um, and honestly, every single day I'm advocating for us um, and, and our, our clients and uh, making sure that we have representation. Um, and then, you know, I'll always post stuff time and time again about 
how I am and where I'm going and what people should do. A lot of mask advocacy is continuing on my side because we don't have the luxury or some of us don't have the luxury to unmask. And now World Health Organization reminding people like, oh, you know, BT dubs, Delta variant, wear your mask inside. I'm like, yeah, no shit. Um, <laughs> to do my favorite. <laughs> so fun. Yep. So, and I used to work on a CDC project. Anyway, um, as a public health practitioner, I'm very annoyed with this whole process because it makes us look like we're unvaccinated people. And it invites harm because we know what's happening with people who are wearing masks and judgment, which we already receive with our invisible stuff. It's just another layer. So I'm constantly advocating for people wearing masks. I have a campaign that's I think coming out tomorrow. Quite oh, fabulous. Um, just the importance of vaccination um, and uh, wearing masks because. Mm-mm. Yep. That sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Akila Kaday, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you today. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before I let you go? I just want to say, I appreciate you and the space that you provide for, for us. Um, because we are all we have, even our loved ones that are non-disabled, they will never understand. So it's really important to have the space where we can hear each other, um, feel that we have something in common and um, feel normal, even though I hate that word. <laughs> Not a fan of that word, word either, but I, I hear what you're getting at. So yeah, I, I, no, really I hate normal, it. but just to feel like we have a sense of community and we're not yeah. alone because it's nothing but isolation and, you know, so. Well, that's exactly why we're here, why I'm here. So thank you so much. And and I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for so openly sharing your story today and holding space for this conversation and for sharing your energies. It has been so wonderful chatting with you. And I I can't wait for everyone to to learn through your story um, and really gain more of an understanding of the breadth of lived experience. (laughs) Well, thanks. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.